This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In With Chris Hayes, the Tom Hartman Program, Counterspin, the Young Turks, Van Jones, the Green News Report, the Majority Report, the David Pakman Show, Moyers and Company, and animation from markfury.com. And remember, the withdrawals are the worst part. Once you get over that hump, everything starts looking much better. If you're watching this right now, odds are close to 100% that you or someone you love deeply has wrestled with addiction. It's a brutal, wrenching thing to watch. I've seen it up close. You want to grab the person and shake them until they stop. But of course, that doesn't work. Because when you confront an addict about their addiction, they generally respond in one of two ways. Some are at a point where they can't even bring themselves to acknowledge that they're destroying themselves. It's fun when I drink. It's not a big deal. I'm not hurting anyone. Or... (laughs) Drill, baby, drill. (laughs) Drill, baby, drill. Drill, baby, drill, and drill now. You famously coined the term drill, baby, drill. Given this catastrophe, are you rethinking your position? No, we still need to drill, baby, drill. Other addicts are ready to acknowledge they're addicted, that they're trapped in a self-destructive cycle. They know it and it kills them that they are. They need to stop. But when you push them to actually stop, what they do is procrastinate and rationalize. It's my best friend's wedding this weekend. But as soon as I get back from that, I promise you, I will quit on Monday. Or... The all the above energy strategy I announced a few years ago is working. And today, America is closer to energy independence than we have been in decades. One of the reasons why is natural gas. If extracted safely, it's the bridge fuel that can power our economy with less of the carbon pollution that causes climate change. What's maddening about this argument is that, in some sense, the addict is correct. I mean, it actually doesn't matter if they quit tomorrow or the day after if they quit a month from now or five weeks from now. But the problem, of course, is that that logic is infinitely extendable. To the addict, tomorrow never comes. The time to quit is never now. Our nation, our society, is addicted to fossil fuel. Quite literally, we are dependent on it. We have a chemical dependency and we need to break it. Or we will raise the temperature of the earth so much it will invite massive risk of widespread catastrophe, disaster, and misery. In fact, if we are avoid heating the planet past the two-degree threshold the world has agreed is the outer limit to avoid the worst hazards of climate change, it is estimated we have to leave 80% of the current known fossil fuel reserves in the world in the ground. That's right. Trillions of dollars of crude oil, of tar sands oil, of coal, and natural gas, we have to leave it in the ground, abandon it there. In other words, we have to stop. And that is why a growing movement has come together to oppose the Keystone XL pipeline, a project that would pump dirty tar sands oil reserves in Canada across much of the central states down to Texas to be refined. Tar sands oil is the dregs, far more polluting than light sweet crude. And that's why the pipeline is the line in the sand. It's the day circled on the calendar. It is quitting time if we are serious. If we're actually going to leave 80% of the known reserves in the ground, if we're actually going to save the world from heating past two degrees, then we have to say no. Today, 
the State Department, which has authority over the pipeline's permitting because it crosses a national border, released its final supplemental environmental impact statement. While it acknowledges that oil sands crude produces 17% more carbon pollution than average crude, it also says that approval or denial of any one crude oil transport project, including the proposed project, is unlikely to significantly impact the rate of extraction in the oil sands or the continued demand for heavy crude oil at refineries in the United States. This is the logic of the addict. Sure. No single project is going to be the project that does us in, just like no single drink it w is what does the drunk in. Sure, it doesn't matter if we quit today or tomorrow, but if we say we're going to quit today and then push it off to tomorrow, we are not quitting. So let us not fool ourselves. If we spend billions of dollars to tap an entire new keg, a dirty keg at that, we are not quitting. We are sinking further into our dependence and self-destruction and dissolution. Now, this fight is far from over. John Kerry ultimately still has to sign off on the recommendation to allow the pipeline to be built. And the president will have the ultimate say. And he has set the standard very recently in his own State of the Union. The shift to a cleaner energy economy won't happen overnight. And it will require some tough choices along the way. But the debate is settled. Climate change is a fact. And when our children's children look us in the eye and ask if we did all we could to leave them a safer, more stable world with new sources of energy, I want us to be able to say, yes, we did. Did all we could. Those are the president's words. The miracle of those who break addiction is the incredible resolve they somehow managed to find within themselves to counter the inner addict's logic, the part of them that tries to seduce them into one more drink by just telling them it's just one more. And everyone who breaks free of any addiction digs down and finds some inner strength to say no, to stop, to say this is the day I start to turn my life around. And the question is whether we as citizens and Barack Obama as a president, as a human being, can find that strength within himself. Should I drink another drink? Am I running out of time? Confusion makes me think. This illusion must be on my sorry mind. Cause I am here and it eats me up. But I love They're saying, hey, as long as it's inevitable, we should just accept it and learn to love it. They're also saying that America is a fossil fuel dependent nation and that the Keystone Pipeline will help lower gas prices in America and make us more energy independent. But A, the Keystone Pipeline is not inevitable. B, America does not have to be a fossil fuel dependent nation. And C, the oil from the Keystone Pipeline is not going to do anything to help gas prices in this country or make it make us less fossil fuel dependent. It's not a the Keystone Pipeline is not about America and fossil fuels. It's about Trans Canada, a, 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 a Canadian transnational corporation, 
wanting to get, you know, get their incredibly dirty fossil fuel out of Canada and into some third world country that's willing to refine it and keep the poison so that they can export it to China. Big oil supporters and pundits across the media have been saying that the use of tar sands oil from Canada and the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline are inevitable. It's not true. On Monday's episode of The Big Picture, I talked with Susan Casey Lefkowitz, director of the International Program for the National Resources Defense Council, about the State Department's report on what the Keystone XL pipelines that was, uh, you know, uh, what the report said, uh, the report that was last re- released last week. I asked her if the report said that extracting tar sands oil from Canada was an inevitable process. And she was quite clear about it. She said tar sands oil development is not inevitable no matter what the pundits and the big oil supporters are going to try and tell you. She pointed out that some people have even said that if we don't build the Keystone XL pipeline, dirty and toxic tar sands oil will still be transported across the United States by rail. But due to its complex nature, I mean, that's the argument that's made, but due to its complex nature, tar sands oil isn't well equipped to travel by train. And it's also more expensive to transport by rail. So it's really not a viable option. Either way you slice it, the use of tar sands oil is not inevitable. We don't have to, or the Canadians don't have to extract that dirty, toxic, dangerous stuff from the ground. Now, what about the talking point that America is a fossil fuel dependent nation and that we're going to be for the foreseeable future and that because of that, building the Keystone Pipeline makes sense? Well, America is becoming less and less of a fossil fuel dependent nation. The U.S. solar industry had its second largest quarter ever during the third quarter of 2013, residential solar power installations were up 45% in 2013 from 2012. In Texas alone, covering half a roof with a solar panel is enough to generate all of the electricity used by an average family in the Lone Star State. Thanks to the boom in solar power used in America last year, the U.S. outpaced Germany in solar panel installations for the first time in 15 years. But solar power isn't the only clean and green form of energy on the rise. Wind power is also gaining traction. Wind power accounted for 42% of newly generated, uh, newly of new energy generating capacity back in 2012, making wind power the number one source of new energy capacity that year in the United States. In Iowa alone, wind power generated nearly a quarter of that state's electricity in 2012. In Texas, it accounted, it accounted for nearly 10% of energy generated. Finally, what about the arguments that oil from the Keystone XL pipeline will help reduce gas prices across the nation and make us more energy independent? Well, even TransCanada has said that oil from the Keystone XL pipeline isn't guaranteed to stay in America. Back in 2012, during a congressional hearing on the pipeline project, Alex Pourby, the head of TransCanada's pipeline division, was asked if he would support legislation requiring Canadian tar sands oil and its byproducts to be sold only in the United States. And he replied, no, I can't do that. And a whole bunch of other studies have found that much of the oil transported through the Keystone XL pipeline is going to be exported. That's why they're trying to get it to the Gulf of Mexico. We won't see a drop of that toxic, dirty, and dangerous tar sands oil unless, of course, we're forced to deal with a tar sands oil spill disaster. The Keystone XL pipeline will cause gas prices to rise, not fall. A report by Consumer Watchdog found that if the Keystone XL pipeline is approved, Americans, especially in the Midwest, will see higher gas prices adding up to an additional 3 to $4 billion a year. That's roughly a 20 to 40% increase on a gallon of gas in the Midwest and a few cents increase everywhere else. 
Because right now the Keystone pipeline ends in the Midwest. And, you know, in refineries in St. Louis and Ohio and Indiana and Missouri, Ohio, Indiana. You shut those refineries down, you move all that stuff down to the Gulf Coast and you start exporting it. Guess what happens? The price of gas goes up in the Midwest. We fought hard to make our voices heard about the Keystone XL pipeline over the past few years. And finally, the government is beginning to realize the grave effects that the Keystone XL pipeline could have on our climate. But the fight isn't over. We cannot let those people who think that that pipeline is inevitable peddle that story or that America is always going to be a fossil fuel-dependent nation. We can't let them erase the progress that we've made. Oh, it's not the end. It's not the end. We have not reached our final breath. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. Restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Cause you know we're making progress every day In the most profound and yet subtle ways the State Department's review of the Keystone XL pipeline found the project, according to the New York Times, quote, would not substantially worsen carbon pollution, leaving an opening for President Obama to approve the politically divisive project, close quote. This prompted a discussion on Meet the Press with host David Gregory and NBC colleague Chuck Todd wondering if Obama would seize the day not to stand against climate change, but to please Republicans. I know the left can be upset with the president, but th there's a real opening to say to Republicans, hey, you said this was a priority? Well, I studied it, and I think it's a priority, too. We'll go ahead and do it. Well, I, you know. It'll be a big moment for him. Todd elaborated on the importance of bipartisanship. But on the big picture legacy thing, you know, the other part that, that the president was elected on was changing politics as we know it in this town. And that's what sort of has stunned me from the David Remnick interview to the State of the Union itself, which is all painted pictures of, you know what, he's resigned to the, to the constraints of the office and the constraints of the politics of this town. He's given up on trying to break the polarization uh, addiction that this town has. Um, some will say he added to it. but. Uh, he's given that up and to me that's the that's going to be something that I think historians are going to be writing about as the great disappointment of the Obama but I think it's, it's actually doubtful that historians living in an era when the sea level is 70 feet higher than today when coastal cities are entirely underwater will be looking at Obama's failure to make common cause with the Republicans to accelerate the burning of fossil fuels as the great disappointment of the Obama era from underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not 
At liberty the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few now, uh, we just had a report from the State Department saying that, uh, don't worry, there's no environmental concerns, uh, no major concerns about the Trans-Canada Project, the Keystone XL pipeline that's going to start in Canada and go through uh, the U.S. Now, uh, CBC News did a terrific report showing that there was this giant explosion and a giant spill back in 2009 that was covered up by the Canadian government. Oops, we just find out about it after the State Department issued their report. By the way, it's not really the State Department's report. They outsourced it to private contractors who have business with TransCanada. Okay, so... Now let's talk about the real safety issues around TransCanada. CBC News explains the pipeline had an uncommon problem, a bacteria that caused particularly aggressive growth rates of corrosion. The Alberta pipeline's rupture rate is five times higher than Canada's national rupture rate, repeated in a 2004 story, study. So understand what's happening there. Because of the way that uh, the tar sands are, the corrosion of the pipes is five times worse than it would be through normal oil pipelines. Oh, golly gee, oh, we just found out about that. Mm, even though they said the environmental impact would be insignificant. Hmm, interesting. Well, then we go to a different uh, news story. And uh, this is about the National Academy of Sciences here in the United States and their conclusions. They say actual levels of polycyclic aromatic, which sounds lovely, hydrocarbon uh, emissions into the air may be two to three times higher than estimated, said the findings in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, a peer-reviewed U.S. journal. So why? They explain. The industry estimates were way lower than the actual measurements, apparently because they did not include any escape of PAHs from tailing ponds, which are engineered dike and dam systems built near mining operations in the oil sands to collect the water, sand, clay, and residual oil left over from processing. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think that they didn't know about that? That, oh, look, that the residual stuff that we siphoned off into there, should we take that into account when we do our studies? Industry estimates. Well, it turns out the industry studied their own pollution, decided it wasn't that bad because they didn't count a huge part of it. Yeah, State Department was a great idea to send that out to private contractors who have contracts with TransCanada. Well played. Now, Frank Wania explains, if you use these officially reported emissions for the oil sands area, you get an emissions density that is lower than just about anywhere else in the world. Are you ready for this? This is really funny. According to the U.S. State Department and that study they just released, they say that the emissions from the tar sands in Canada are less than the emissions in Greenland, where they have almost no industry. <laughs> They're not even trying hard. They're like, yeah, well, obviously we're corrupt. It's just, yeah, oh yeah, it's better than Greenland. It's, you know what? Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. It's, it's, it's less emissions than the Garden of Eden. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. It's uh, less emissions than the North Pole. Uh, Santa's mucking the place up with all those elves. And that, all that toy production. Canada has pred uh, predicted that oil sands development 
will bring in about $2 trillion over the next two decades. Hmm, could that be the reason why industry estimates have underestimated by two to three times what the actual emissions from this pipeline are going to be? What does Fox News say? We report, you decide. Those are the actual numbers. Okay. Unfortunately, of course, the reality is we don't decide at all. Our corrupt politicians decide, and it's a near guarantee that President Obama will approve this. The Canadian government wants it, the U.S. government wants it, and emissions, pollution, corrosion, be damned. The citizens of those countries, be damned. They got to make money taking the oil out of Canada, shipping it through the U.S. through the pipeline, and onto other countries. We get all the pollution, all of the possible problems, but we don't actually get the oil. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Welcome back in the Crossfire Night. We've got two senators, John Tester and Roger Wicker. Now look, a foreign corporation called TransCanada is using three big myths to sucker the American people, including everybody at this table, maybe you at home, into supporting a special interest boondoggle. It's called the Keystone Pipeline. Please do not fall for this. Myth number one, they say it's going to create a bunch of jobs. Actually, it's going to create maybe 3,000 temporary jobs and 35 permanent jobs. Myth number two, it's all about oil. Actually, this pipeline would carry a toxic goo of tar and chemicals that's 20 times dirtier than oil, and the last leak, last time one thing things leaked, it cost a billion dollars to clean up, and the Kalamazoo River is still a mess. Number three, it's all about energy independence for America. No, this pipeline goes from Canada out through the Gulf Coast. This stuff in the pipe, it's not headed for your gas station, it's headed for China. So, you, my hero, my senator, my Democrat, oh, he's buttering you up. how can you <laughs> fall for this complete farce? I cannot believe you support American farmers risking all of this to make a foreign corporation a lot of money selling dirty crap to China. I got a bad idea. I don't think it's right Bad idea Will keep me up in the night I got a bad idea I don't think it's right Bad idea Will keep me up in the night 
Police arrested 398 young people on Sunday who tied themselves to the White House fence to protest the proposed Keystone XL tar sands pipeline. They're demanding President Obama deny a permit for the project intended to transport heavy tar sands crude oil from Canada across the Midwest to the Gulf Coast, as organizers tell Democracy Now! Hundreds of young people, probably going to be over a thousand on the march, all came here from all over the country, 42 states, to show President Obama that Keystone XL is not okay, that it is not in our natural interest. Meanwhile, a new study of the proposed pipeline finds that the State Department underestimated the contribution the pipeline would make to global emissions. The study says Keystone XL would significantly increase total greenhouse gas emissions over time, the equivalent of 46 new coal-fired power plants. I wonder if that study, as well as the hundreds of people who got arrested at the White House, will just be ignored. It kind of seems like that's what happens. Like I said, CPAC is coming up in the next couple of days. And if you're so inclined, I don't even know where it is. But on March 6th, that's Thursday, at 3.30, they've dedicated a whole 90 minutes to this. What's the deal with global warming? (laughs) It's in D.C., I'm not sure what hotel it's at, but it's in the Chesapeake uh, D and F room. And the panel is moderated by Joe Bast, president of the Heartland Institute, which is essentially a front group for the oil industry. We've talked in the past, and the guys at Desmog Blog have done a great job of pulling apart all the Heartland Institute documents, which show that they basically are just a propaganda outfit for the oil industry. On this panel, moderated by the Heartland Institute, taking place again at the uh, Gaylord National Resort and Convention Center in D.C., Steve Malloy, Director of External Policy and Strategy for the Murray Energy Corporation. (laughs) To make sure that they have some type of credibility in debating the issue of what's the deal with global warming. Mark Morano, longtime climate uh, change denialist publisher of the blog Climate Depot. Dr. Mario Lewis, senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Initiative. You don't even need to know what these places are. You just need to know the name. George Landreth, president of Frontiers of Freedom. And Shannon Smith, CEO of Abundant Power Group. Abundant Power And here's the description. An Al Gore fever dream? Real but with caveats? Real but irrelevant. We're going to give you every opportunity and every talking point to deny global climate change uh, at this panel. I'm living a lie. 
I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at majority.fm. I'm Today we're going to take a little bit of a pause from the facts on the ground in Ukraine with the Russian invasion of the Crimean Peninsula and talk a little bit about the crazy that's coming out of the woodwork as a result of what's going on in Ukraine. Now, we alluded yesterday a little bit to this, talking about Sarah Palin saying she made good on her prediction and she's this great foreign policy expert because you can see Russia from her house in Alaska. But Paul Ryan is saying something that's even more outrageous. And Paul Ryan was on CNN and he was being interviewed by CNN's Kate Baldwin yesterday, and he suggested that there's a really simple way for President Obama to solve the crisis in Ukraine, and why it's up to President Obama to solve, I don't know, but Paul Ryan thinks that it is, and he says the way to do it is for President Obama to approve the Keystone XL pipeline. Watch this. What can right. Congress do? The president, the administration, considering sanctions that it can do without an act of Congress. But what can Congress do realistically? Well, I think we should move forward on natural gas exports uh, very quickly. I think we should approve an LNG terminal on the East Coast to go to Europe. I think we should approve the Keystone Pipeline. I think we should show that the U.S. is going to be moving forward on becoming energy independent and supplying energy to Europeans. Moving forward so with the Keystone Pipeline, that, that development yeah, would take years, though, to actually make that happen. The signal, the, the, Kate, the signal that is America is open for energy business and America is going to be helping our allies with energy resources so that they can be less dependent on Russian energy resources. The signal is very, very important, and I think showing that this is going to make us move in that direction helps give our allies the kind of resources they need and reduces Russia's grip on this. The Keystone XL pipeline will create 35 to 50 permanent American jobs. It will not lower fuel prices. It will not reduce our dependence on Middle East oil. The U.S. Defense Department is actually preparing for global chaos if climate change continues to wreak havoc on the planet. And climate scientists think that Keystone XL will contribute to that. It's also not a safe way to transport oil across our country. It really won't pump much money into the American economy. And the obvious thing is that the oil itself is coming from Canada. As far as I know, Lewis, I don't know if Texas textbooks have gotten this crazy, but Canada isn't the United States. And it's not Russia either. <laughs> uh, and he says this will send a message. Well, what message is it going to send? Well, it'll uh, send the message in 10 years when this is finally up and running. Although Paul Ryan said it, it would send a signal, even if it would do nothing for years and years. Right, a signal to Putin in Russia you know, I was unaware that the majority of our um, 
natural resources are coming from Russia, David. Well, it is true that Russia provides much oil to different parts of the world, including Europe. So it's kind of like this convoluted thing where to believe Paul Ryan, you have to believe that, number one, this is all President Obama's both responsibility and the onus is on President Obama, Obama from, for help, him to solve this. Number two, that European countries would be less likely to ally with Russia if we provide them an alternate fossil fuel source, they will make that connection. It's an incredibly convoluted thing. Really what it is is just Paul Ryan taking yet another opportunity to link anything that's going on around the world to trying to uh, uh, get this Keystone XL pipeline pushed through. That's all this is. Just as I You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, 350.org campaigns. Today was the deadline for public comment on the northern half of the Keystone XL pipeline. Agencies will now have 60 days to weigh national interest and environmental concerns for this $5.4 billion project. As already covered here and at investigative outlets such as Smog Blog and Mother Jones Climate Desk, Keystone is actually several projects, and the southern half is already operational. Perhaps both because of and in spite of this, the State Department's decision on the project known widely as Keystone XL has both environmental and political importance. Stopping Keystone will be a massive win for green groups and climate activists. The approval has been delayed because of protests across the country and at the White House. Having those protests seen as successful could fuel additional activism and put pressure on elected officials to listen to their constituents. Just this past week, the EPA stepped in to halt the Pebble Mine Project after publicity and activism by Alaskan journalist Shane Moore and others. The Clean Water Act is being invoked to prevent the destruction of the world's most productive salmon fishery by companies seeking access to copper and gold. Activism can and does work. 350.org is already building on that idea and giving you the chance to direct your own campaign. Under the Get Involved tab at 350.org, there are templates, suggestions, and aids for a race awareness and creating petitions. As the Start and Win Campaigns to Protect Our Common Future page says, people power will solve the climate crisis. Taking on global warming is a huge task, so we need people working all over the world on lots of different campaigns to make it happen. Suggested issues to campaign on include renewable energy, dirty energy, the climate impacts, i.e. community destroying drought, flood, and wildfires. 350.org pledges to help focus and amplify your campaign by providing access to their global climate activist network, strategic consulting on media and grassroots organizing, and specialized reports centered around your specific campaign goals. 350.org provides tactics and starting points as well as a few model campaigns already underway, such as say no to corporate power grabs, reject the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and a Canadian effort to protect First Nations from big oil. Keystone has been a national focal point for so long, a massive void in the discourse on climate is going to be left once the decision is made. Join 350.org in dictating the conversation and driving the next wave of actions, and then let us know about it here at Best of the Left, where amplifying progressive voices and activism is our sole reason for being. Activism. 
activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? My guest is a journalist turned activist who is often asked, how can you remain so optimistic and so energized when you've taken on nothing less than the threat of global catastrophe? It's a question he's even heard from me more than once because I've known him for years now as both colleague and friend. After all this time, Bill McKibben's stamina and soulfulness continue to amaze me. We met over a decade ago on a canoe trip together for the making of my series, America's First River, about the history of the Hudson and the struggle to save it from industrial pollution. In the fall and the winter and the spring, it's a pretty lonely, beautiful place. I'd read his classic work on our environmental crisis. He called it the end of nature, a prophetic summons for a profound philosophical shift in order to save the earth from suicide. It established McKibben at the forefront of efforts to cope with the potential cataclysm of climate change. I asked him to join the board of the Schumann Foundation, I was the president of it, which promoted environmental and independent journalism. But as he continued to publish books and articles, he grew impatient with the pace of public awareness and change. So, in the tradition of muckrakers of old, he resigned from the board to combine his writing with activism. With the foundation's support, he became the Schumann Distinguished Professor in Residence at Middlebury College in Vermont. Soon after, he founded the grassroots climate campaign, 350.org. And my guest, Bill McKibben. You've probably seen him in the news since then, maybe at one of the 15,000 rallies the group has coordinated in 189 countries, or on a nationwide bus tour to campuses across America. Or in this demonstration last year, when McKibben and others were arrested after chaining themselves to the White House fence to protest the Keystone XL pipeline. That pipeline would carry vast amounts of tar sands oil, over 800,000 barrels every day, from Canada down through the American heartland to refineries on the Gulf Coast, which opponents say would release dangerous amounts of carbon into the atmosphere and accelerate the warming of the Earth. Last week, the State Department released a review of the pipeline's impact that both opponents and supporters say helps their side. And that brought Bill McKibben to New York City for yet another rally, calling on the Obama administration to say no to the pipeline once and for all. We need people like Barack Obama to start standing up finally. Bill McKibben joins me now. Welcome. Good to be with you. So what does it mean that the State Department said last week that there's no evidence that there will be an environmental impact from the pipeline? And the White House has said indirectly that, well, the oil will get out one way or the other, with or without this pipeline. The White House and the State Department especially, I think, would like to approve it because big oil really wants it. They've spent hundreds of millions of dollars. But 
their story is unraveling. Uh, the idea that it would make no difference is crazy. It's a pipeline that would carry 800,000 barrels of oil. In the last two weeks, the head of TransCanada itself has said, if we can't build this pipeline, then the expansion of the tar sands is called into question. Um, yeah, they'll be able to get some oil out of there, but they've only gotten 3% out so far. This is one of these places where we can put the brakes on if we act now. If we did that, then there's a chance that these international negotiations that ran aground at Copenhagen in 2009 might be able to be resuscitated, that we might be able to get back on some kind of track. But somebody's got to take the first step. Barack Obama ran for president in 2008 saying, in my administration, the rise of the oceans will begin to slow. He said, it's time to end the tyranny of the oil industry. Um, a lot of people believed him when he said those things, and now they're going to find out whether or not they were right to believe or not. You've said on other occasions that one, one of your objectives was to try to help the president do the right thing, and that's why you were arrested and others were arrested. Do you have any indication from sources in the White House, friends of yours in the movement, that he's heard you? Uh, I'm the last person to ask for inside information in the White House, I fear. I don't think I've been there since uh, like tour in sixth grade. Um, I was arrested, locked to the gate outside, but I, that doesn't give me any inside information. What we've been able to do is build a movement, okay, from the outside. It started with indigenous people in Canada and the U.S., groups like the Indigenous Environmental Network. It expanded to include ranchers and farmers along the pipeline route, groups like Bold Nebraska. Um, and then it grew to include this climate community, people all over the country who understand and are scared about the rapid effects of climate change that we can talk about. They came together for the largest civil disobedience action in 30 years in this country about anything. And that was enough at least to make Keystone an issue. Without it, it would long since have been built without any peep from the Obama administration. There's a marvelous story in McLean's, the magazine, about a Republican rancher in Nebraska who actually triggered the first opposition because he was concerned about his water. Concerned about his land that this you know, pipeline was going to cross, and it crosses the Oglala Aquifer. It's interesting. Many of those ranchers and farmers didn't care at all about climate change um, three or four years ago. But now when I go out to Nebraska, they say, you know, now we understand a good deal more. We watched our drought, record drought in 2012 across the Midwest that made you know, it difficult to grow food in the richest farmland on the planet. Um, and we understand now why that's happening. So this is how movements grow. The only question is whether it can grow quickly enough. We're up against a time-limited problem with climate change. If we don't solve it soon, we will not solve it. So far, we've raised the temperature of the Earth one degree Celsius. That's been enough to melt the Arctic. It's been enough to trigger crazy weather already. That drought across the Midwest, now a drought that's gone to California, where there's no rain at all. We've raised the temperature one degree. That's made well, it's made the oceans 30% more acidic, but the same scientists who told us that would happen tell us that we're going to raise it four or five degrees before the century is out if we keep on our current trajectory. You're up against time as mm. a factor, but you're also up against 
you know, an enormous financial and political colossus. I mean, I have read that if we stored, if we listened to the scientists and stored 80% of the carbon in the ground, we'd have to write off assets worth $20 trillion. Certainly, companies would be hurt, but you know, uh, the, the future on the other side of fossil fuel for normal people is bright. Once you've got a solar panel on your house, what do you know? Your electricity comes for free. I mean, nobody can meter the sun. That's what's so scary to the Exxons of the world. They've got a great deal now. Um, they've got, well, they're the richest companies on earth. Exxon made more money each of the last four years than any company in the history of money, you know? Um, and it's because they do not have to pay for the damage that their carbon does in the atmosphere. They, unlike any other company, get to throw out their waste for free, you know? If they didn't, if they had to account for it anyway, we'd already have moved to sun and wind. And the things that everybody knows are the energy sources of the future, the only question is, will we let Exxon and Chevron and Peabody Coal keep making those record profits for the five or ten more years that would break the back of the planet's climate system. Let's face it, the way we finance fossil fuel is the heart and soul of much of our political system. You don't have a lot of support in the political world. Well, this is the richest industry on earth. That means it's the most politically powerful industry. That's why the U.S. is stood aside. Barack Obama, who theoretically is a good environmentalist, stood aside and, in fact, opened up the Arctic to drilling, opened up huge swaths of offshore America to more oil drilling, opened up the Powder River Basin to more coal mining. Um, you know, this is a, these are tough guys to cross. Uh, the American Petroleum Institute told the president two years ago, you do what we say on Keystone or there'll be political trouble. Um, we'll find out how scared he was. From in a decade, the lessons that we learn make us willing and able now. The future got to be earned, be concerned. Make sure you take the right turn. Full time aware of all the bridges that you burn and giving and taking the moments we don't share. What is in the making? Well, if I end with grudge and fear, don't you care? History repeat right there. Now you're drowning in the river of tears. Open out your windows and your door. We're innovation. We're jobs. We're American. We're the American Petroleum Institute. And we're your best friends. We're pleased to announce the State Department reported no significant greenhouse gas emissions resulting from the Keystone XL pipeline. Because, like it or not, more tar sands oil is on the way. Sometimes a pipe is just a pipe. Under the leadership of our CEO, Jack Gerard, we made sure the State Department hired a member of our organization to help conduct the environmental review, a member who has previously worked for the very company who wants to build the beautiful and necessary pipeline they're reviewing. We at API have spent the most we ever have on lobbying, and it's paying off with global warming confusion and a long-term commitment to fossil fuels. But just to be sure, we've also been spending to spy on environmentalists. Because you can buy peace of mind. 
Jack Gerard is confident that after Obama's full-throated endorsement of natural gas, he'll soon give a fuller-throated endorsement of oil. He'll be gargling oil for breakfast if he knows what's good for him. We're almost there, thanks to the American Petroleum Institute. Soon, the Keystone XL pipeline will be delivering clean, emissions-free tar sands oil that will do everything good you ever thought possible. Leave the worrying about oil spills, eminent domain, and carbon footprints to those unstable farmers, homeowners, and hippies. Real Americans will sit back, relax, and do what we tell you to do. the world are using today as a day of action in fighting climate change. Hundreds of environment campaigners gathered in Edinburgh today. You said a moment ago that theoretically mm. Obama cast himself as an environmentalist mm. and certainly during the 20. 2008 and the 2012 mm. campaign, he was right out front on his pronouncements. But then he made a speech during the 2012 campaign in Oklahoma, where the pipeline connects mm. with the southern mm. leg of that line and runs all the way down to the Gulf Coast. Listen to this excerpt mm -hmm. from the speech President Obama gave Absolutely. in 2012. Under my administration, America is producing more oil today than at any time in the last eight years. Over the, that's important to know. Over the last three years, I've directed my administration to open up millions of acres for gas and oil exploration across 23 different states. We're opening up more than 75% of our potential oil resources offshore. We've quadrupled the number of operating rigs to a record high. We've added enough new oil and gas pipeline to encircle the earth, and then some. If that's not drill, baby, drill, what is it? That was a shameful speech, and it came with shameful action. The president said, well, we'll delay and study some more of this northern leg of the Keystone Pipeline, but I'm instructing my administration to expedite approval for the southern leg from Oklahoma down to Texas. We'll get the permits in record time, and indeed they have. As of last month, there was oil flowing through that southern leg of that pipeline. Um, that's why people don't trust him on this issue. He's done some good things. But his record is mixed at best, and he will be remembered at the moment as the president who produced more carbon than anybody thought possible, unless he begins to act now with real power. Knowing that you read Rolling Stone, where you wrote your article 18 months ago that went viral, here's the latest by Tim Dickinson, How the U.S. Exports Global Warming. The greening of American energy is both real and profound, but even as our nation is pivoting toward a more sustainable energy future, America's oil and coal corporations are racing to position the country as the planet's dirty energy dealer, supplying the developing world with cut-rate, high-polluting, climate-damaging fuels, much like the tobacco companies did in the 1990s when they couldn't go any further in this country. And in this case, there's no question about secondhand smoke. Carbon dioxide, wherever you emit it, 
Beijing or Boston has exactly the same effect on the planet's temperature. So shipping this stuff overseas is exactly the same as burning it here at home. We're doing the same thing with natural gas. They're trying to build LNG export facilities along the Atlantic LNG. coast. Liquefied natural gas. Right. Along the Pacific coast, people are doing a magnificent job of fighting these proposals for coal ports. But so far, the Obama administration's been no help in trying to head off those developments. They've given in to the fossil fuel industry by and large. And as a result, America is digging up more carbon than it's ever dug up before. What do you see as the consequence of the positions and the actions and the decisions he has already made? He's laid the infrastructure to keep the fossil fuel boom going for another 40 or 50 years. The crucial 40 or 50 years as far as physics and chemistry are concerned. If we keep building out coal and oil and gas the way that the Obama administration is so far encouraged, then his good efforts around coal-fired power plants and automobile mileage won't mean anything in the long run. He wants to have it both ways, mostly the fossil fuel way, and we need him to actually stand up for the environment. You mentioned Copenhagen, the conference of nations that came together to try to come up with an agenda to confront global warming. And you saw the report about the National Security yes. Agency. It turns out, thanks to Edward Snowden, that the NSA was bugging everyone. Everybody. No, look, this was the great foreign policy failure of the first Obama administration. When the Copenhagen summit collapsed, the headlines of the newspapers in Europe the next day were calling it the Munich of our time and, you know, just the greatest diplomatic failure ever. Uh, at the time, we didn't really understand just how crummy the whole thing was. It was when Snowden uh, revealed that the State Department had bugged, every, or the NSA had bugged everybody there and was giving their work product, as they call it, to the State Department. Then we started to understand, as the Danes said, the Danes were hosting the meeting, and on behalf of the EU, they put forward at the last minute a rescue plan for this conference designed to bring people together around an agreement. And the Danes said, it was as if the Americans knew beforehand what we were going to propose and just sat back and did nothing. So how would they have used it to, to, to create a blueprint for, their, for the U.S.'s own uh, agenda there, for how it would react sure, to these sure. proposals? We didn't want to have uh, uh, any kind of binding agreements there. The Obama administration had decided that it was going to work on health care, not on climate change, and it was downplaying international action. Uh, there's a long history of the U.S. stalling the international efforts. I mean, we never signed the Kyoto Treaty. Uh, there were, you know, time and time again, and this was one more of them. And the fact that we went ahead and bugged everybody there, I mean, it's pretty much a demonstration that these were not, I mean, you've got to have, if you're going to negotiate something this hard for everyone, you got to do it in good faith. Think about the Indians or the Chinese coming there. They use far less energy per capita than we do, you know. For them, dealing with climate change is much harder than it is for us because they have to figure out how they're going to pull people out of dire poverty without it. Now, they can do it, and they're starting to. The Chinese put in more solar power last year than any country, any time, any year, okay. But, you know, this is hard for them. We weren't even willing to play fair. Why are you now urging students and leading students and organizing students to 
uh, ask their universities and colleges to disinvest from the stocks they own. And because we're tired of only playing defense against the fossil fuel industry. It's important to stop pipelines and coal export facilities and all those things, but it's like the little Dutch boy trying to stick his... We're running out of fingers and there are too many holes, okay? We also need to play offense, and divestment is a powerful way to do that. It's worked one time, uh, really, in a big sense, and that was around South Africa 25 years ago, when lots of colleges and cities and churches and foundations sold their shares in companies doing business with the apartheid regime. When Nelson Mandela got out of prison, one of the first places he came was California to thank students in the UC system who'd forced the sale of about $3 billion worth of apartheid-tainted stock. Well, it was Mandela's great accomplice, Desmond Tutu, who helped launch this new divestment effort. He said in this great video, he said, if you could see what climate change is doing to Africa, the famine, the drought, you'd know why we'd asked you to pick up this tool again. Uh, Africa is suffering unbelievable damage. Africa burns less than 1% of the planet's fossil fuel. Even if they turned off every engine and every light bulb and every other thing in Africa, it wouldn't make any difference. We need to take responsibility. And the people at institutions like universities, they need to provide some leadership. Those are the places where we've learned about, you know, the danger that we're in. You're up against a wall of apathy, hostile opposition, money, power, and time, as you say. I find, as I travel around, that most people understand that we're in a serious fix. Eighty percent of American counties have had some kind of climate disaster in the last two or three years. Two years ago, that the New York City subway system filled with salt water, you know. Sandy was the lowest barometric pressure ever recorded north of Cape Hatteras. How many warnings do we want? The world is changing. Things are possible now that weren't before because we're changing the climate. I mean, it feels like God's doing his level best to tell us the fix that we're in. Um, one crazy episode of weather after another, these are the alarms from a system that's beginning to swing out of control. We're supposed to be homo sapiens. Um, intelligence is supposed to be our mark. We've been given the warning by our scientists who have done a terrific job at reaching consensus on a difficult problem in physics and chemistry. They've told us that we're in deep trouble. They've told us what we need to do, get off fossil fuel. The question now is whether we're actually going to respond to that, and it's like a sort of, well, it's like a kind of final exam um, uh, for the question, was the big brain a good adaptation or not? You know, we're going to find out in short order. And each of these things that comes up, like the Keystone Pipeline, is a kind of pop quiz along the way. And so far, we're failing more of them than we're passing. Jay, this is Tanya in Sassoon City, California, and I wanted to address the call from Matt in Michigan, who identified as queer, although he's, he's never kissed a man, and I wanted to talk about your responses addressing your concerns about claiming a, a marginalized identity when you haven't had the life experience of that group. 
So I actually take issue with your response, and here's why. Matt didn't identify as gay. He identified as queer, and that's a much broader umbrella group. It encompasses, um, you know, many non-conforming sexualities, you know, or, um, non-conforming orientations, gender expressions, uh, even, you know, political ideologies, because he talked about queer theory. Now, during that show, you made a strong case for expanding language to encompass a very wide range of identities in the trans community and, you know, moving away from that, that uh, the binary restrictions of our concept of gender. But don't you think the same case should be made to move away from binary ideas of sexual orientation, you know, homosexual and heterosexual? There's a, there's a million shades of gray in between. Um, it's actually, a, you know, a continuum, and for some people that can be fluid through their lifetime. And um, to further complicate this idea, um, gay is both an adjective and it's a noun. It can describe an identity and it can describe a sexual, um, you know, type of sexual practice. Um, and in fact, these two things can be discordant. Um, a person could feel and, and know that they're gay on the inside, but because of internalized homophobia or religious prohibitions and social condemnation, they could go their entire lives without ever having same-sex contact. So, which are they? Are they gay or straight? Uh, a person who feels 100% heterosexual may be sent to prison for 20 years and um, practice nothing but homosexual sex during that time and come out of prison and go back to being heterosexual. So while they're in prison having same-sex contact, did that make them gay? Um, then you've got your, your priests and your nuns who supposedly have never had sex and are celibate. Um, even though they're asexual, most of them probably have a sexual orientation identity. And that's real, even though it's never been expressed through sex. Um, and then finally, don't forget about the radical feminist lesbian separatist movement, which included many women who may have felt they were born straight, but they decided, they made a choice, uh, not to give their sexual energy to men as a sort of a sociopolitical strategy to combat patriarchy. And if I'm not mistaken, it was from this movement um, that arose language and identities like lesbian identified bisexual, you know, and other such nuanced descriptions. So... I think the important thing to remember is that queer identity encompasses far more than a sexual practice or a gender orientation. It's cultural, it's uh, political, it's philosophical, it describes both a community and a value system that's radical in that it seeks to reject or you know, redefine uh, those rigid uh, indoctrinations that we all receive about how our sexuality and gender should be expressed. So uh, a woman who... Um, say she engages in heterosexual sex, but she refuses to shave her legs or under her arms. She may choose to identify as queer because she's refused to conform to gender grooming expectations. And maybe no one else ever really sees this because she wears pants and, and sleeves. So her experience in the world may not be that different than a woman who does shave. But the fact that she's rejecting a gender expectation and resisting the norm, that may change the group with which she identifies, even if no one else would notice that. So it's not only about how we experience the world and how we're treated by others, it's also about group identity and where we feel we belong. So Matt's belief system in itself is non-conforming um, in that it challenges the binary sexual paradigm and gender socialization. 
So he hasn't ever kissed a man. Maybe someday he will, maybe someday he won't. That's only the adjective that describes his sexual practice, and that's only one aspect of queer identity. Queer is also a noun, and he relates to that concept of himself and said he doesn't identify well with the um, heterosexual because of the tradition behind it. So obviously he feels the word queer better describes his identity and his value system. And I think that um, the word queer has room in it for people like him. Um, and the whole idea of inclusivity of language is to allow people to identify, you know, self-identify as they choose. So thanks for taking on this topic, Jay. Bye. Hey Jay, this is Jane from Boston. There are a lot of people, myself included, who would really like to be allies of the trans community. But a lot of us, in some ways, are a lot like Jacob, or Robert, who called in the last episode, who are grappling with these issues. Like, what does it mean to be a gender binary? Like, we can't get in these people's heads. Like, their experiences are so different from ours that we really can't relate to it. So it takes a lot of, um, you know, hearing other people reason things out, talking to people, like working through these issues. And I, I just think that the, the, the community does themselves a small disservice by by being so adamant that every single thing is right. It makes me afraid to talk about things with other people. It makes me afraid to advocate for fear that I'll say the wrong thing or use the wrong language. But I want to be on their side and I'm trying. Like, I just need to realize it's a, big, it's a steep learning curve. And it's going to take us some time, but we're getting there. Um, just be a little patient. I'm not saying accept us how we are, but I'm saying be patient while we get there. Anyway, that's all. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Jay. Uh, this is Dan from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I was calling to put in my two cents on the whole trans conversation that's been going on. Um, so on, on this show, your listeners and, and you and your programs, um, you talk about this idea of the trans conversation, um, and I would say the the program does a pretty good job of focusing on the inaccuracies of the media reporting on these trans issues um, and the trans issues themselves, such as murder rates, um, targeting of violence, uh, justice, um, not being served properly. Um, and I'm just, I guess I want to make sure I'm on the right page, but doesn't a lot of the talk about the individuals, i.e., genitalia and transition and and not on this program but in general in the media so we always talk about the genitalia and transition and all this other stuff it i don't know it seems like it completely obliviates people to to those systemic inequalities um and targeting that they're there's just so much more pressing um and substantive and significant than than the idea of understanding how trans people kind of came to where they were. I don't have to understand why they got to that point. And frankly, as a fortunately cisgendered male, I will never understand it. But I don't have to understand what it's like to be trans or the transition from from being, you know, to use inappropriate syntax before and after. I don't have to understand that to know that they're human and they should be helped and cared for and defended just like any other human should be. Um, I don't want to pick on a caller from the last uh, episode, but they said, quote, and this was, I'm sorry, they were talking about kind of people in, in general, the masses, 
quote, they'd be more against discrimination and rape against trans people if they had their more fundamental questions answered by open trans people, end quote. More against discrimination and rape. More against it. Shouldn't that be something that you should just be 100% against? You should be completely against the idea of discriminating against a group of people. I don't care what you are. You should not be discriminated against in an ideal world. And isn't that what we're striving for? You should not be raped because of who you are. And the idea that there's there's a more against it uh, just kind of boggles my mind. Anyways, um, that's my rant. Uh, hopefully I'm touching on something real and not completely off base. But um, thank you very much for the show. I'm really glad you brought up this trans um, topic. It seems to have uh, lit something in me. And, uh, yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. I don't have much to say here at the end, uh, and frankly, the... 100% honest reason for that is that I have had the single worst day of work that I can remember. Uh, It's been long and frustrating, and I am just sort of simmering with anger over a variety of things, and... um, and so I don't have the will or the energy to, uh, to, to come up with anything to say today. And, uh, so what I decided to do was come up with a shameless plug for membership instead, because, uh, what I'm going to do is release all of this frustration and anger into a members only bonus show that I will probably record tomorrow. Once I've had a, a good night's sleep, everything has been allowed to sort of simmer, uh, and, you know, for me to get a little calm. And then I will release all of that anger again tomorrow. And so the members will get to know, you know, about the sort of day I had, which I think might be interesting. So, you know, if you're a member and, and you don't already have access to the bonus content, please get in, in, in touch with me. That's, uh, that's a thing that happens. You know, it's just, there were some logistical hiccups. Some members don't have access. I would love to give you access. And if you're not already a member, uh, please feel free to sign up at the website. And then you get all, not, not just this one about me yelling about my bad day, but there are like you know, a couple dozen uh, bonus episodes, all of which I think are worth your time. Uh, so all that can be done at the website. But that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, where all sorts of amazing uh, posts are, are being put. You should definitely check that out. And uh, for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway at outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a cry and shame how we get so trained